welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Keith Jagger. Dr. Jagger is the university chaplain at John Brown University. I'd like to invite you on to a posture of prayer as we uh, pray together for the world, our country, and our people. Whether you're at home uh, or in the office listening on live stream or here, you might want to open your hands like this. Father of creation, the one who knit us all together in our mother's wombs, we turn our attention to you now, having prepared our hearts in song. We come to your heavenly altar now and bring our, our prayers to you before we open your word. And together, Father, we pray for the United Kingdom today in the Commonwealth as the many countries that that represents are going through a major transition as they finish their grieving for Queen Elizabeth and face what must feel like an uncertain future ahead. We pray that you give the leaders of those countries uh, courage, wisdom, and strength and the people of those countries may you specially minister to in this time. We also think of those today in Puerto Rico um, who are suffering the effects of the hurricane uh, with power outages and a major disruption to their life. Father, we don't know how to pray or help in such a distance in this room, in this moment, but we do turn our hearts in prayer for them. For those who are um, dealing with the destruction of their home, uh, the disruption of their work and, and profound loss. We pray that you would be specially present with your church um, in, in Puerto Rico. And would you uh, rally communities together to support one another uh, and bring, you, uh, bring your, both your spiritual and your physical provision to them in this time. Father, we thank you also for the uh, festival this weekend, the Spanish Heritage, Hispanic F uh, Heritage Festival. Thank you that you um, are a God of many nations, of many tribes and peoples and tongues. And we celebrate, Father, with uh, those, especially your church uh, in Hispanic uh, heritage communities. Father, there are things that only we can, we can only learn from them as your church uh, leads us on, uh, the, the people of, of Hispanic heritage. So thank you, Father, for that, that celebration, and may our hearts continue to rejoice in your, your many-colored and many-ethnic kingdom. Father, we um, also turn our hearts close to home, especially to those that we love in this, this space and time. I uh, pray for our student athletes, Father, as they are in mid-season right now, especially those uh, seasons that are taking place right now. I thank you for, uh, for the, the community, the fellowship that you knit together on our athletic teams, uh, spaces where not only uh, our friends and our, our, our comrades compete, but also uh, come to become people who are more shaped in your image. And so for any specific needs of our student athletes today, whether they're financial or relational or personal, I pray that you give a special touch uh, to them in this season. Uh, give them endurance and give them courage to, to keep on going. And Father, I 
was thinking about our congregation today and so thankful for uh, the many people that are in this room this morning. And I want to give a special prayer. I, just, I feel a special kind of burden to pray for anyone who's in a season of preparation. Whether they're preparing for a test or preparing for a play or whatever it is that they're preparing for. If there are people in this room who are anxious or losing sleep or just not sure how to prepare for what feels like uh, a next step in their life, I pray that you'd come and specially minister to them in this time and place today. Would you give them the confidence that you are with them? Would you give them the grace which um, is super abundant around us in every, in every day? And so, Jesus, as we open your word now as a, as a congregation, we um, look to you. Don't be silent. Don't be still, Holy Spirit. Come and hover over this place and inspire us today with your holy word. So we love you, Jesus, and we lift all of these prayers and the prayers we don't, haven't spoken today up in your name, your strong name, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. How's it going? Come on. As we come into this time of scripture this morning in worship, we enter into the presence of God, our Father and Son and Spirit. And we do so today with the special gift of grandparents in the house. We are so glad that you are here today. Um, I don't have any of my grandparents left. Uh, all of them have passed and have died fairly young. Uh, some of you may be in that boat with me today, uh, or some of you may not have your grandparents here with you and are missing the, your living family line. But whatever the case is today, we celebrate with those of you who get to have your grandparents here with you. And if my memory of grandparents serves me well, you might have these elderly states people of your life uh, follow you around campus and quietly smile as they delight in uh, coming to get to know and show interest in your college life. And that's incredible. Uh, it's what a gift. Uh, but if there's a window in the next day or so as you're with them, do take the opportunity to ask them questions about their lives. Ask them what their college life uh, experience may have been like, or their young adult life. Ask them to tell you what they think it's important for you to know about your family line. Um, and uh, you might even get a chance to ask them about their faith and what their faith has, what they've learned about God in their 50 or 60 or 70 plus years of life. Um, it's really wonderful to worship today with generations in the house. So thank you for being here. Also, congratulations on making it to Breakaway Week. We're heading out to New Life Ranch this Friday evening to start our evening worship. Uh, Sign-ups are officially closed. That's the right cue. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so we can give our hosts at New Life the, the um, numbers that to expect for housing and for food. But if you missed signups and are still interested in going, please find the posters around campus and the QR code and put your name in the mix and we'll get you on a reserve list. Uh, we might have a chance to take some of those reserve, a few extras with us. So do sign up if you're still interested. 
Okay, as we jump into the scriptures today, my, my prayer for us all is a breakaway kind of prayer uh, that those of us in this space who may feel isolated or struggling to find their people at John Brown would begin to find that in short order, maybe even this weekend. And that those of us who may need to be refreshed uh, would find themselves led by quiet waters this weekend uh, with some heart on heart time with God. Amen. So after Dr. Rivera brought us through the story of the sick man at the pool last week in our John series, and after our communion last week, this week we have two more doses of our John series for you. Today with John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. So let's jump right in. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So John tells us that sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore. As John sets the scene for our gospel today, for our reading today, one of the most famous events in the life of Jesus, which is the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, John is being really careful to mark both the time and the place of these miracles. They are around the Sea of Galilee, and some time has passed since Jesus was in Jerusalem, healing by the pool of Bethsaida. People up to this point have encountered Jesus in large crowds, and they've witnessed his healing in public places. And it's now near on the Jewish Passover festival, the yearly festival where the Jewish people took time to remember the exodus that happened some 15 centuries before. The celebration of the Passover served the Jewish faith, no doubt, by offering this yearly reminder of God's power and his perfect timing. No doubt, Passover, this national holiday, had these people nostalgic and hopeful once again for their own rescue in their own lives. And Jesus' mighty works during the Passover season would be naturally compared to Moses' work many centuries before. So much like Christmas and Easter in our context, these holidays had many people thinking about their faith, stirred by the great stories. Therefore, I think it's no small thing that John is marking time and place. In order to draw us into this significant moment of Jesus' life, I think John here, actually our reading today, is one of the greatest New Testament teachings on the nature of faith. So as John gives us this amazing teaching on the nature of belief, John is first tugging us into the rich world of Galilee before 69 AD. So let's take a moment to get our minds there with him, especially because the story of John doesn't just stop with the walking on water, Jesus is walking on water as the synoptics do, but John carries the story to the next day, to what happens when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue in Galilee. And I think that if we're going to get the full impact of this all, we should get into Galilee. 
So Galilee of the north, a four days walk from Jerusalem, four days hike down from the mountains of Judea, was home to hundreds of thousands of people. A royal family, lots of synagogues, some cities, a major sea with fishing ports, including Magdala, Capernaum, Bethsaida. The region was good for growing wheat and olives and grapes. There's a few aristocratic types around, but mostly farmers and day laborers. The political history of the, the region for the, from the last hundred years was rough, causing this mix of cultures, religions, and ideas, which was now all under Roman imperial rule. And part of the evidence of how mixed the situation was, was that you have two of Jesus' disciples named uh, Andrew and Philip, which are good, strong Greek names. So when 5,000 of these people come out to see Jesus in the wilderness, you find rich and poor, farmers, religious leaders, people who knew the stories of God and who centered their lives around prayer, but who also knew of other religions, specifically religions of the great prosperous empire. So their faith lived and survived in a time and place where belief in Yahweh wasn't inevitable. There were lots of options for them to believe. Um, but belief in Yahweh was a strong option for those whose faith was set on the God of their ancestors. So these are normal people. These are mothers and fathers and all shapes of people from all occupations figuring out what they believe and who to put their faith in. And that's the crowd of people that we get when Jesus first saw them. So when he first saw them, when he looked up and saw a crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now we might know this story. We might have learned it in Sunday school. We might have heard about it in different contexts. But let's do a really quick overview of what's going to happen next. Because again, we want to get the whole picture of what John is trying to tell us about faith. So Jesus proceeds to feed them, miraculously, with only a handful of supplies. In an event which hearkened people's minds back to the feeding in, in the Exodus generation. Um, while Jesus, as the synoptic accounts tell us, is moving in and out of these crowds, healing all the sick that were there. Then Jesus sends his disciples on a boat back across the lake at night as the crowd camps and sleeps. Now, as the disciples make their way back across the lake, leaderless, Jesus goes up to a mountain and spends the night praying. Um, he goes to, uh, by himself to this mountainside and, and comes out to them as the storm uh, whips up on the lake and walking on the water. Now John, again, carries the story forward so that what we get is the next morning, the disciples and Jesus get across the lake, and the crowd who camped out the night before are wondering, well, where'd he go? He was here the night before, where is he? And they clamor back across the lake of Galilee to find Jesus. And when they found him, John says, on the other side, 
they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I'm just gonna keep reading because this is just the Bible and it's good. So they said to him, what are the signs you're gonna give us then so that we might see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then Jesus goes on to speak in shocking terms. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and I will raise them up on their last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. So this is the work of God, belief. This seems to be at the heart of Jesus' teaching here. These folks want to do work for God. And Jesus' Jesus's response, your work is to come to believe. Nobody will blame you if you think this is an oxymoron. It kind of is, work and belief. And it's also a complete letdown of God's role for us in his kingdom. Our work is to believe. We want, might want to be put in charge of the fields, or we might want to be a doorkeeper, or we might want to be a servant in a different way. We might want to lead a great movement for God. But our work, our main work, says Jesus, is to come to a full faith in him. At first sight, this is a little confusing and a little underwhelming. But the mystery of Jesus' teaching here is the centerpiece of our way of life. Faith, coming to have faith. 
And through this mighty act of events, Jesus is going to show us how to believe. In fact, in this really tightly woven bit of scripture, Jesus is trying to elevate all those common people who came out to see him and to seek him. All of us common people, he's elevating to a kind of faith which endures, a faith which doesn't fall into the traps of consumerism, a faith that endures, one that's not based in convenience, a faith that doesn't believe one day and is swayed by anything else the next. Now when I was a kid, I went to church, I had a a family who went to church, and faith itself really never had been issue for me. I'm someone who has always, from a kid to an adult, struggled more with hope than with faith. More of when, when life gets rough, when things get down, how do I take one more step in life? That, that's my perennial struggle. Faith has always sort of seemed possible for me. But I remember early on in, in, in junior high and high school, there were times that I was sort of trying different things out. I remember finding books on yoga and books on all sorts of different ways of, of, of expressing this deep belief that, that was inside of me. And I remember, you know, one evening, this was before the internet, by the way, you know, this was like, yeah, books. And so I had this, like, when I was like 14 years old, I had this book on yoga, and I'm like, okay, you know, making all the positions. And as I did that, I recognized I didn't feel totally right. Like there was something that was a little off in that that practice. And I remember this choice that I made very early on. Am I going to give myself and my spiritual inclinations into this way of life? Or am I going to lean back into the faith of my, my fathers and mothers? And I remember making an explicit choice to follow my intuitions, trusting that, that, that movement deep inside of me. And, and um, I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I listened to those intuitions. All of the deep stirrings of my spiritual heart, I've found a deep fulfillment in, in the way of Christ. So if you've been following our John series so far, you've perhaps recognized that this is what really we're talking about this semester. Faith. What is faith? You know, the Gospel of John teaches us about all sorts of beautiful things, uh, but faith is one of them. And early on in the semester, we've talked about Jesus being the pre-existent word, this dynamic reservoir of divine created energy. We've talked about Jesus' resurrection already. We've talked about faith as coming to know who God is and what his character is like, but faith is more than that. It doesn't disclude that, but it's more than that. It's Jesus being a great light and us choosing to allow that light to expose us ongoingly because it's a healing light. It's being willing to admit all the kinds of sinful tendencies that grow up into us. And so today, as we look into this scripture, we see that Jesus is not only a light and that can help us learn what faith is, but Jesus is also food. Now, when I think of, of the teaching so far in John, I think of three different things. First, that faith does involve the intellect, but it's also a whole person endeavor. And Jesus' best metaphor for this kind of faith is eating. Second, that the kind of faith that Jesus warns us against is the kind of faith that, faith that consumes false foods or, or foods that don't last. And third, the goal of faith is life. 
The goal of faith is a life that's profoundly worth living, one that will be raised up on the last day. So let's dig into this just for a second here as we have a few minutes. First, faith is this whole personal person endeavor that involves eating. Um, look at Jesus' words here. The one who believes has eternal life. Now we'd be forgiven if we thought that faith was just merely an intellectual exercise. But Jesus says it in four or five different ways. Not just whoever believes has eternal life, but look, whoever comes to me will not go hungry and whoever believes in me will not go thirsty. See, belief is not just a belief about Jesus. The scriptures say the demons believe, but it's a belief in. And that's a very different thing. Belief in, when you believe in someone, you say you believe in their capacities. If you have an athletic child and they're about to go out into a sports, a sports game, you say, honey, I believe in you, which means I believe that you've got the ability to succeed and do well in this, this uh, game of yours. If you're Indiana Jones and you come across a tattered rope bridge going across a major chasm and you say, I believe in this bridge, you're not saying that you believe the bridge exists. Of course it exists. You're saying, I believe that it can carry my weight. So when you say, I believe in something, and when Jesus says, come to believe in me, and you will not go thirsty, it's not just to believe about Jesus, but it's to say, I believe that he has the ability to carry the weight of my life, the weight of all the things which matter to me. Jesus also says here that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And so, look at this, coming to Jesus, looking to him, it requires not just this choice. Sometimes I think we think of faith as this multiple choice test. I believe, I don't believe, or maybe. I think if we put faith like that, we're missing on the fact that faith is a whole human experience. We don't just come to faith in our brain, we come to faith in our heart, and we let faith move out in our hands. In fact, we have our motto here at John Brown, head, heart, hand, and faith is the, 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 the changing of all of our faculties, our head and our hearts and our hands, into, into loyalty to Jesus. Um, but in case this, this is, we're kind of dense as human beings, and in case this isn't getting to us, Jesus comes up with this profound metaphor to help us understand what faith is like. He says that if you want to come to believe in me, you must eat my flesh. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I am him. In fact, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you've got, you have no life in you. Powerful metaphor, powerful metaphor. Faith in Jesus is like eating. Well, what does this mean? What do we know about eating? Well, you need it to survive. If you're gonna be anything like a human fully alive, you'll have a certain number of calories each day. You might miss a meal here or there, but if you miss a meal, your body's going to let you know. You'll have a headache or stomach pains. And if you, know, if you don't eat all of your calories uh, in one sitting, that's okay because it takes three meals a day to be fed. I love, what about drinking? I mean, you can go 40 days about, you know, with, with, without eating food and, and then you'll die. <laughs> but what about 
drinking. You can only go two or three days. I was, um, I was as I was a, a pastor in my previous life, I, was, uh, I had a, a congregant who had a swallowing issue and they got some food stuck in their throat. And after two days, they knew they, they couldn't get even water past this thing that got stuck in their throat. So they needed to go to the emergency room. Because if they, did, if they went one more day without drinking, that's going to be the end of them. And then they'll die. Um, I, love, I love those of you who walk around with massive jugs with these marks on them. You know that if you don't drink a little bit of enough water by 9 a.m., and if you don't drink enough water by noon, jump, that your organs aren't going to work right. You've, you've discovered what the rest of us dehydrated people ha- haven't yet. The functioning of your body requires food and water. And Jesus, being the master teacher he is, pulls on this metaphor and says, if you want to have life in you, if you want to know what it is to believe in me, it's like eating and drinking. Now, don't ask me why Jesus gets gross about it, but um, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm still working on that. But here's what we know. That faith requires eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual water. I like to call this feasting on the word. If Jesus is the word of God, then we need a a regular diet of Jesus. We need to consume him on a regular basis. If we go 40 days without feeding on Jesus, we might as well be spiritually dead. If we go two or three days without drinking in Jesus, we might as well be spiritually dead. And some of us might know what that feels like. I know what that feels like. You go a little, a little too long without opening the scriptures and encountering Jesus in the scriptures, and you start feeling like your mind is starting to go a little dark. You start, you start slipping into patterns of life which you don't really want to be part of. You start to feel spiritually famished. Now, we've talked about the fact that Jesus is different than the scriptures. Jesus is the word of God. He's living, he's active, he's breathing, he's all around us. We can feed on the word. Um, Sometimes the word comes to us on a walk in nature. Sometimes a good movie can nourish our souls and Jesus feeds us. But there is nothing like and there's no more powerful access to the word than through the scriptures. Trust me about this. I've tried different things. When we open the scriptures and open our hearts to Jesus, we we are eating spiritual food. Um, We can read the scriptures without feeding on Jesus as well. We can approach it in an informational kind of way where it's all about the information that we're taking in. We need to come to the scriptures with our hearts open to encountering the living and active word. And the best way I can describe this is that as we enter into the word, as we open the scriptures before us, we open our lives up. If you, if you need some help knowing what it is to encounter the living presence of God as you open the scriptures, I would love to spend 45 minutes, an hour with you in my office guiding you what it, what it, what it is to feed on the word of God, to feast on the word of God. But, with, with, but if we don't, if we don't regularly feast on the word, this is a recipe for starvation. And I think that when the enemy comes and starts giving, casting suspicion on the scriptures, when we start getting suspicious of the scriptures, can I really trust them? Sometimes we've got issues of, of textual tradition and interpretation to work through. But most often I've found that people who don't, who have, who have skepticism about the scriptures, have actually just chosen not to eat their spiritual food. And the enemy 
has devised a lot of strategies to avoid us from eating and feasting on Jesus. Sometimes I wish I had two days to preach these messages, but this is, this is we have one day here. So um, what I'd like to, uh, to finish off with today as I challenge and encourage us to be people who feed on Jesus, feed on his presence, feed on his goodness on a regular basis, is to remember that we serve someone who we see as superior. When Jesus changed a bit of food and changed... Um, changed a bit of fish into the ability to feed, feed 5,000. He's also the same Jesus who started out walking on the water. And the reason why he walked on the water and the reason why he left the feeding of the 5,000 scene is because he knew, John tells us, that they were going to make him king. They were coming to make him their king. They were coming to ask them to rule them. Um, and Jesus is not a, a, a ruler that's after power. He's not a ruler that's after control of a people group. He's after all of our hearts. He's after spending the rest of eternity drawing us towards him. And so when he walks on the water and when he feeds the 5,000 and when he teaches so profoundly, he's drawing us close. He's drawing us to someone who is actually worthy of our deepest devotion. So my prayer for us is that if there's any obstacle in the way of coming to embrace this, any obstacle in the way of us that's um, of coming to feed on Jesus, that the Lord would remove that today and teach us and draw us close. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.